hearts. Our text this morning is Romans chapter 8, beginning of verse 23, uh, reading down to verse 25. <clears throat> this is really a continuation of what Paul has been saying thus far, what we had went over last Lord's Day. It is a continuing thought, uh, whereas before he was talking about creation groaning, waiting for its redemption, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. And now Paul begins to speak to us about our own groaning. And that groaning is, is that groaning longing for that, that hope, that blessed hope that is yet to come. That's what this section is mostly about, is hope. It isn't a hope as far as wishful thinking as what we would normally say. We use that a lot. I hope that this comes about, or I hope that this team wins, or I hope that I get to go so in, to this place or wherever. Uh, this is a sure hope. This is a certainty that is, that is in view here. This is, this is our hope of looking forward to what Christ has in store for us. The things that we are already experiencing even now in our Christian life is just a foretaste of what is to come. There is a blessed hope that is far beyond our comprehension that is yet to come. Paul has already alluded to some of this uh, in our text last week, uh, working into this one, of course. But he had told us before that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that awaits. That is, again, taking the attention of the believer and focusing it once again upon the Lord. The sufferings of the present time, your trials of the present time, your, your anguish, your pain, it's not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to come. Our temporal sufferings, our trials, our mental anguish, these pale in comparison uh, with what Christ has for us at the, con at the consummation of all things. This glory that is to be revealed that Paul has already uh, alluded to, that he's already spoken about, is so magnificent, it's so glorious, it's so excellent, that even creation itself, as he personifies creation in our text from last week, creation itself longs for this day. He says that creation groans. If we just go back and read, he says for, in verse 19, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Personifying creation, creation is looking forward to this day. And you think about this, how magnificent is creation itself? How glorious is the creation in the present? And it's longing for the day in which the sons of God will be revealed, that it will be renewed and be even more glorious than what it is. There is much beauty to be seen in creation. And we look at creation and we think how insignificant that we are. That's what the psalmist did. The psalmist looks at creation in Psalm 8 and he says, When I consider your heavens... The work of your fingers, what is man that you take thought of him? And he ends that psalm saying, How majestic is your name in all the earth, that the glory of God is displayed throughout all creation. How magnificent creation is and how excellent that it is, and it reflects the beauty of the Creator and the majesty of the Creator. And what Paul says is even though creation is so glorious and so excellent and so magnificent, you see the glory of God displayed in it. It's waiting for the day in which the sons of God will be renewed, that it will be renewed to be even more glorious. And if you think of that, then just consider just how, how glorious and how excellent is what Christ has in store for us. If creation is already beautiful and excellent and magnificent, 
and it's going to be enhanced even more so, then think about man, which is the pinnacle of God's creation and what God has in store for him when he uh, brings all things uh, to its intended end at his appointed time. So the apostle here is, is writing once again to encourage the believers to point their, their minds and their eyes towards Christ with this blessed hope that is yet to come, this extraordinary, uh, this extraordinary hope in which creation's freedom and creation's deliverance is, is hinged upon that. It's tied to our redemption. This is, this is a day in which all creation will be made new. All will be made right. And then the glorious blessing that the people of God are privileged to receive is to be made in the likeness of Christ. We don't know what we're going to be like, but we know we're going to be like Him. And that far outweighs any glory that creation ever had. And Paul is saying, consider this. This is your hope. This is a certainty that is to come. And so that's what we're looking at this morning of this blessed hope that Paul is, is writing to his audience about. And that blessed hope is something, again, not just to look forward to and, and to consider what all things might be and what we might be like and all of that, but that's the hope that gets us through this life. This is what he's, he's going back to. The sufferings of the present are not worthy to be compared with this hope. And then he's going to expound on this hope. This hope is what gets us through this life. All your pain and suffering and the, the mental anguish that we endure. Again, just consider, yes, you have to endure it at this particular time. But think of what's coming. Look forward to what's coming. Consider what is coming. Because it far outweighs any tears that we shed here. And even in that, even in the present time, that doesn't mean that all is lost and that, that we only have despair. We still have joy. We still have peace. We still have uh, the presence of God with us that, that takes our minds and, and focuses them upon Christ and that healing takes place and all of that. But there is far more to come for the people of God. We have a blessed hope that we look to. So today we're looking at that hope, that expectation of hope, that confident hope that we have that persevering hope that we have in Christ. So if you would, and you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. We are looking at Romans chapter 8, verses 23 to 25. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. Let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, we humbly come into your presence this day. Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you for uh, this great hope that we have that is expounded for us today, that is laid before us. Father, help us this day. Help us to focus ourselves upon what, what you have for us here in this passage. We pray that you bless the preaching of your word and may it accomplish all you desire in us. Cultivate this hope in us even more so. 
Let us not look to the things which are seen in the temporary things in our difficult times. Let us look to what is not seen, the blessed hope yet to come. Father, we pray that, again, your word would go forth, that your spirit would do a mighty work within us, applying it to our hearts, that you would be glorified and the name of Christ be magnified. For we love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's children said, amen. Please be seated. So Paul has said, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation, being personified, looks forward to the day the sons of God are made new. And the implication of what Paul is saying is creation looks for that day. It was subjected to the curse. It now produces thorns and thistles. Man works by the sweat of his brow now because the creation itself was placed under the curse all the way back in Genesis because of the fall of man. He says concerning that, that creation was subjected to futility. It was subjected to decay and death, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. That was in the sense that the Lord himself was the one who uh, placed creation under the curse. But did so in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. We talked about that, that creation is groaning. It is yearning for the day to be made new. And the day that it will be made new is what Paul alludes to here is the day in which the sons of God, meaning men and women, because Paul uses that language to encompass all, that all men, all women who are in Christ are treated as firstborn sons of the household, heirs and joint heirs with Christ waiting for the day in which we will be glorified in him. We know that at the resurrection, as Paul, Paul has, has written to the Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians 4, concerning the resurrection, that the dead in Christ rise first, we are changed uh, and caught up to meet them in the air. It is at this time that even Jesus said, for everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will not perish and will be raised up on the last day. This is the day that creation looks forward to, the resurrection day. Creation will be made new, purged of its decay and sin, sinful man being upon it. Creation looks forward to that day. So as creation groans, yearns for that day, here's what Paul says. But here's your expectation of hope for you. He says, and not only this, not only does creation groan and creation yearn for that day, But also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, we groan inwardly, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. He says, we groan, looking forward to this day. We who have the first fruits are groaning for more. One theologian had said it in this way. He says, you can render this verse in a few different ways. He says, quote, even though we are already so rich, We are reaching out for riches even more precious. He says it could also be said this way. Since we already have the spirit, we are convinced that much more is still in store for us. We are therefore eagerly yearning to receive it. And the third way he says that you could say this, 
what Paul says in verse 23. Though we have already received so much, we are still groaning within ourselves for more. That's the, the groaning that is in, in view here, is that, uh, that desire for more, yes, that is part of that. That yearning and longing for uh, the expectation of what Christ has for us, yes. It is also a groaning, a recognizing our own lack of what we uh, cannot do here and longing for the time in which we will be made whole. You know, there's a few things that are in view here when we talk about groaning. Uh, even the word itself means to utter a deep moan indicative of pain, grief, or annoyance. It means to sigh, to give a deep, long sigh. One that is expressed uh, with an emotion. Paul says we groan in ourselves. We groan because of a few different reasons we can look at. We groan because we have a heightened awareness of our sin because we have the first fruits of the Spirit. This is a groaning that takes place for the people of God. This is a groaning that takes place even though he says we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. But he says that we groan anyway. We long for this day. One of the reasons why we groan, again, is our disappointment with ourselves over our failures. We groan because of our conviction of, of sin, uh, recognizing that we fall short. And we groan. And we groan because we long for the day in which we will not contend with sin any longer. And as you continue in your Christian life, and you see that I was talking to a brother the other day, he said, you know, the thing is, the, the remarkable thing is that the more we come to know, the more we realize just how much we fall short. And I said, yes, that is very true. And because we fall short and because sin is still present within us and we find ourselves just as Paul does, as Paul has already told us, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Because of the remnants of corruption that still reside within us. And that makes us long for the day of recognizing that we were under the curse. Christ has delivered us from it. We are made new. All of those glorious truths by all means. But we recognize too that we still have the remnants of corruption in us. And it makes us groan longing for the day in which, oh Lord, we will be made whole in you. Do you feel that at times? Especially in the, in the moments of your greatest failures. Or even in small failures. Sometimes it's the small things that end up uh, causing us more disappointments. How could I have done that? How could I have said that? How could I have uh, even remotely thought that? Surely I, I should be further along than this. And it's the smaller things sometimes that, that tend to cause us to be, as, be discouraged and disappointed with ourselves. But what does it do? What does it do when we find ourselves in those situations? Well, one, it obviously convicts us that we come before our Lord asking for forgiveness, asking for healing, whatever the situation calls for. But it also makes us pray, O oh Lord, sanctify me all the more. O oh Lord, help me to overcome this. Draw me closer to you. Give me strength. 
that I don't have, but I know that you do. Even the small things make us yearn to be made whole. The small sins, though no sin is small by all means. I don't want to make that out like, oh, little white lies are okay. No. But the things that we would consider to be perhaps not as significant as others. It makes us long to be made whole. And Jason has expressed a number, a number of times to us the one thing that he personally looks forward to well, when he gets to heaven is not only to see the king and to bow at the feet of the king, but it's also to know what it's like not to contend with sin. Do you feel that too? What would it be like? We don't know. But we long for the day in which we will find out. And we will know. To be fully sanctified in him. So having, even though we have the first fruits, and it's because we have the first fruits of the Spirit that we have that heightened awareness of our sin to begin with. Because the Spirit resides within us, the Spirit convicts our hearts, the Spirit takes the Word of God as we study and as we hear it read, it applies it to our hearts, gives us an even greater awareness of, of what God has demanded of us, what God calls us to, the life to live, all of that. But also because we have the first fruits of the Spirit, we also experience great joy and peace that we also long for more of. So though we have a heightened sense of our sin and it makes us long for the day in which we won't sin any longer, that we will be fully sanctified. And so we long for that day for those reasons, but we long for that day as well because we experience that joy and that peace that is only found in Christ and the peace that surpasses all understanding. In the moments in which you shouldn't feel peace, you do. How does that work? It can only be because of the working of God in us. And we long for more of that. We long to, to have that joy that is in the Spirit that we are able and privileged to experience even now. What great joy that the people of God are privileged to experience. You know, life isn't, you know, people, you know, we, we, we use these, these sayings every now and again that, you know, life is hard and all of this. And granted, there are very trying times in life. But there's nothing in life that should take our joy from us that is in Christ. I want you to consider this. Well, well some of the objections that we might think of as well, what if you're going through this? Or you have this situation in your life or this medical situation? Or what if you're being persecuted? I want you to consider this. One of the first Marian martyrs was John Rogers. John Rogers was one of the first men killed by Queen Mary during her bloody reign. And what they would do is they would bring him to London, they would try them, and then they would take him back to the city in which they preached, and they would burn him at the stake right in front of their church, in front of their congregation. There was a French ambassador that was there the day that John Rogers was being led to his death. And he's riding back to France. And he says, it looked as if 
Rogers was going to a wedding. That was his countenance. But as he's being led to his death, he's singing the Psalms. How do you do that? Knowing that you're getting ready to experience such great pain and being burned to death and to be burned to death in front of your family, in front of your church. And yet, he's singing the Psalms. And then he gets to the place of his execution and he looks over his family, he looks over his church, and he says those words, that which I have preached to you, I will now seal in my own blood. And he lifts his hands as the flames consume him. How do you do that? How do you have such joy in the midst of knowing that you're going to your death? Because that's the joy that God provides to his people. He wasn't the only one. There were many more Marian martyrs who died and died joyfully. Many martyrs throughout history that died joyfully in the Lord. So even if you bring up that objection, well, you don't know what's going on in my life. How can you say for me to have joy? I can say that to you because the scripture tells us to rejoice always in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. How? Because it's the spirit that produces that joy in you as he lifts up your eyes to behold the majesty of the great king who says, you're getting ready to come home. And I'm here to receive you. That's joy that only the spirit of God produces. And that's a joy that can't be taken by no thing, no circumstance, no situation, no person. And because we experience that joy now, that joy makes us long for more. To be in the presence of God, fully made whole. To worship Him as He deserves to be worshipped. To love Him as He deserves to be loved. To give Him thanks with, perfect, with, with that perfect heart. We long for that. He grants us that joy even now. He grants us that peace even now. That stillness of heart. And how is it, again, if you just, if you just consider the very character of God, that's how the Apostle Paul can say what he said in Philippians, to rejoice always in the Lord. And this isn't, this isn't in the indicative mood. This isn't just a statement of reality. This is a command by Paul. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Well, Paul, how can you say that? How can you tell me to rejoice? Well, here's the Apostle Paul who's chained to a guard in a dungeon. And he's telling you to rejoice. If he can worship God and have joy and peace in a dungeon in Rome, then you can too. You know why? Because he reflects upon the very being of who God is and the promises of God. That there's a confidence that we can have in God regardless of the circumstance to know, I don't understand this. Maybe we never know why certain things happen, but I know that he does. 
I know that nothing is purposeless. I know that everything has a purpose that is to glorify God. It may not be in my lifetime. It may be for somebody else. I don't know. But the very thing I know is that it's not without meaning. And because we know the character of God, we can, we can trust him and we can look at that and we can consider those great truths. I can have confidence in you, O Lord, because I know you work all things after the counsel of your will. I know that this is nothing that is hindering your will, O God, because you declared the end from the beginning. I know that nothing that happens in the domain of darkness can ever affect anything in the kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom of your son, because Nebuchadnezzar prayed and said, nothing can hinder your hand. And these are the things that we preach back to ourselves in our time of need to remind us of the goodness of God and the majesty of God and the power of God and the sovereignty of God. That that joy remains, that peace remains, that stillness of heart remains. Even when it shouldn't. Have you ever been in those type of situations in which, for whatever reason, something very difficult might be coming. You might know it's coming. Maybe something happened very suddenly. And instead of falling apart and losing all hope and falling into despair... Instead, there's that calmness of heart. There's that calmness to know it's going to be okay. Regardless of what happens, it's going to be okay. Have you been there and experienced that? That's, that's not just you saying, you know what? I'm a really strong person and I know I can get through this. Because the reality of it is, you're not. How many times have we talked about that? For any small thing, we would wave the white flag. We're done. And yet what is it that keeps you driving further and driving more? It's not you. It's not your strength. You don't have any. But it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is the one that produces this, this endurance in us and gives us that peace as we are enduring. And he does so through the spirit that he has given to us. He has given us the Holy Spirit, the first fruits. He says, now what does he mean by that, the first fruits? Well, he, he's probably... Uh, playing off of many Old Testament passages that speak of uh, the first fruits of the harvest or the harvest of first fruits. It was, it was anticipating, that harvest was anticipating the greater harvest to come. And so Paul says that not that we have given anything to the Lord, instead it is that God has given you the first fruits of the Spirit. This is something that God has given to you, and it's very similar to what he says in Ephesians. You have received the pledge of the inheritance to come. You've received the down payment, and there's more to come still. You've received the first fruits of the Spirit, which is God's pledge to you. It is his guarantee to you of what, is more, what more is to come. So having the first fruits of the Spirit, having the presence of the Spirit within us, 
to give us everything that we need in our time of need. That's what he does. He convicts us when we need it. He gives strength when we need it. He gives us grace when we need it. You know, oftentimes we, uh, we may have questions, even, even talking about the martyrs. How can this happen? And what will we do in those situations? Well, God doesn't necessarily provide to us as of right now what potentially may come. But in the moments in which we find ourselves in those circumstances and situations, he provides exactly what is needed in the moment. We don't know what we do in that circumstance because we're not there. But the very thing we do know is that God provides for his people in the moment that we need it. MacArthur said it this way. Talking about the passage of scripture that is in the Sermon in the Mount, Sermon on the Mount, in which Jesus says, If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give you what is good? And he says it's like this. What we ask of the Lord, he gives an abundance of. You ask for truth. He's given you the truth teacher. You ask for comfort. He's given you the comforter. You ask for help. He's given you the helper. You ask for strength. He's given you the spirit of power. He says, you ask for the product. He's given you the source. God gives us exactly what we need in the moments that we need it. And he does so through the spirit of God who is our pledge of what is to come. And because the spirit works within us, convicts us of sin, to help us to long to be made whole, long for the day in which we will be made whole. He also grants us that joy and peace that is only in our Lord. And it makes us long for more as well. So Paul says, we also... Having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. We groan inwardly, continually, growing or groaning inwardly, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, waiting for our sonship. Now, this is something that Paul has already said that you are all in Christ, you're, you're already sons. So, what is he meaning? We're waiting on it. We're waiting on our sonship. We're waiting eagerly for our adoption. Well, he continues the redemption of our body. You are already, if you are in Christ, you are already adopted into the family of God and considered to be sons of God. We know that. Uh, John tells us in John chapter 1, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name. You are a child of God. You are adopted into the family of God already. But yearning for the day, that blessed hope that is to come, you will receive something even greater, which is the public display of your adoption in Christ. Right now, indeed, you have been made whole in the sense of you've been made a new creature. Your old nature is gone. You have a new nature that is patterned now after the spirit of God still dealing with the remnants of the corruption, all of that, but you're a new creature. Old things passed away, new things have come, but then there's coming a day in which there's a public display of your adoption in Christ. And it's the day in which you will receive the redemption of your bodies, he says. 
know, he's talked about the body already. He said some, some things in Romans chapter 6, for example. He says in verse 4 of chapter 6, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that, it, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. And you come down there and he then says, concerning the present time, to not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. There's a lot that he says concerning the body. There's even some things that he says concerning being delivered from the body of this death. But this body that we have, even though it's referred to in that kind of a manner, this body is not just to be discarded as having no significance. Because the full redemption that Christ has paid for you is the redemption not just of your soul, but the redemption of your body. Dr. Lawson says this way, we have a redeemed soul inside of an unredeemed body, and this unredeemed body is subject to decay and death, end quote, but then on the day of resurrection, this body is renewed and redeemed. And it'll be the public display of your adoption in, in the Lord. To be redeemed, this, this means it's, it's a deliverance. It is a deliverance that is procured by the payment of a ransom. And we know that Christ is the one who paid the ransom. Not just to redeem your soul, but to redeem you as a whole person. In the beginning, God created man, body and soul. And then in the end, when we're in the eternal state, you will be body and soul. And your body will be like him. Don't know what it's going to be like, but we know it's going to be like his. Not that we will be like him in the same manner. There's always going to be the difference between the creator and the created. But to have a physical glorified body that will last for an eternity, this is, this is what is in view here. The redemption of your bodies. And that knowing that, knowing that the body will be redeemed at a time yet to come and that we have to contend with what is in our flesh now, that, that does, I hope, give us some, some comfort to know that, that even though we struggle with sin and even though at times sin does reign in our bodies, not in the sense that it did before, but we find ourselves doing the things that we hate, that it does give us some comfort to know that one day God will make us fully whole. <clears throat> the Puritan Thomas Watson, he says this, The godly may act faintly in religion. The pulse of their affections may beat low. The exercise of grace may be hindered as when the course of water is stopped. Instead of grace working in the godly, corruption may work. Instead of patience, murmuring. Instead of heavenliness, earthliness. This lively and vigorous this lively and vigorous may, may corruption be in the regenerate. They may fall into enormous sins, but though their grace may be drawn low, it is not drawn dry. Though grace may be abated, it is not abolished. Grace may suffer an eclipse, not a dissolution. A believer may fall from some degrees of grace, but not from the state of grace. 
Though we struggle and we groan, we long to be made whole. We long to know what it's like not to sin. We long for more joy and, and peace and to know the love of God to a greater degree, to lay hold of that which laid hold of us. In the present time, we find ourselves in certain circumstances in which we, we fall. We struggle. But though we struggle, the hope that we have is that one day we'll have the public display of our sonship in Christ that will be granted to all who are in Christ. To be delivered from sin fully. To truly walk in the newness of life in the likeness of Christ's resurrection, as Paul had said, we have such a hope to look forward to. We have that expectation of hope. We have a confident hope. He says in verse 24, For in hope we have been saved. And hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? We have with that certain expectation, he says, of hope. We have that. It is ours. Again, to have that kind of hope, which is that certainty, having that hope to grow and to be cultivated in us is to remember and to reflect upon the very character of God. For we serve a God who cannot lie. We serve a God who is not like man. And thank, thank God he's not like us. We serve the living and true God in whom there is no darkness, no shifting shadow. And what he says is certain. And so that's what Paul is getting at, especially with his readers, especially those that know the law, that know the Old Testament. You know, he had already told them about this hope beforehand, this hope that even Abraham had back in chapter 4, verse 18. And hope against hope he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so, so, so shall your descendants be. He's already spoken of hope up to this point and using Abraham as an example. But consider this hope. If you look at Hebrews chapter 6, again, speaking of Abraham... We'll jump in verse 13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. This is a sure Hope, a steadfast hope, an anchor for the soul, one that is grounded in the very being of God. Now you consider this promise that God had made to Abraham. When you go back to Genesis 15 and you look at this, in which God made this covenant with Abraham, that he made this oath to Abraham, this promise to Abraham. He told Abraham 
bring these animals, cut them in half, put them on either side. The custom in the day was that the two persons who are making an oath to one another are making a treaty or some kind of a covenant. They would walk together through these pieces of animals that were laying on either side and basically saying to the other, I promise I will do this, and if I don't, let me be like these animals. But when this occurred with God and Abraham, a deep sleep came upon Abraham, and it was the Lord who passed through. And it was almost as if the Lord is saying to Abraham, you stay over there, and I will pass through, and if I don't bring to pass what I've promised you, let me be as these animals here. And he was also saying to Abraham, this is not dependent upon anything you do in order to meet some criteria, and I will do my part. This is, you stay over there, and I will swear that I will bring this to pass, and it's dependent upon me, not you. And when we think about the promises of God that are contained in Christ, that is the very same scenario. When God makes a promise, this is a sure promise, it is a certain promise, and it is not dependent upon your performance. It isn't that the Lord's going to do 99% of everything and you've got to do that 1%. That is an insult to the majesty and the holiness of God, an insult to the very work of Christ that has secured it all paid in full. When God makes a promise, He is trustworthy. It is certain. And speaking of hope, the Old Testament is full of passages of Scripture in which the people of God are called to hope in Him. They're called to hope because He's trustworthy. That whatever it is that He has promised the people of God, it is certain to come to pass. And so just as a few examples... Like in the Psalms, Psalm 31, verse 24, Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who hope in the Lord. Psalm 62, verse 5, My soul, wait in silence for God only, for my hope is from Him. And you go through there, O Israel, hope in the Lord. Many, many passages that speak and call to the people of God to hope in Him. And that hope, again, is not wishful thinking. It is a certain hope. Paul tells us not to look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. The things which are seen are temporal. The things which are not seen, seen, uh, seen are eternal. And that's why he says, for, for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. If you can lay hold of it, it's not, it's not anything... To long for anymore once you receive it. This is a future hope, the certainty of future hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? Do you hope in him with that hope of certainty? Or is the hope that you have in Christ merely wishful thinking? I really hope that I, uh, since we're Perform people here. I really hope that I'm part of the elect. I really hope that God will receive me. You know what that is? It's more wishful thinking. Dear Christian, if you are in Christ, and what is it? 
What is it to be in Christ? What is required to be in Christ? To believe. Period. Believe. What is the simplest form of the gospel that we could tell anyone? Jesus died for sinners. Do you believe that? Is that where your assurance lies? Is knowing that Christ died for me. When we talk about saving faith. We're not talking about a faith in which you come up and you say a prayer. And you fill out a card. And yeah, I've been presented with two particular options here. I can either burn in hell. Or I can have this nice place over here full of bliss. Some kind of. As some theologians said, uh, a lot of people get their idea of heaven from far side cartoons. We're going to be on this floaty place playing a little harp. That sounds better than the other. So we come up and we, we pray this prayer and somebody says, Now don't ever doubt your salvation again because I was a witness that you prayed this prayer. And then we go on about our business and we live our life however we want to. And then when the subject comes up, are you a Christian? Oh yeah, I prayed that prayer. You may have prayed a prayer But the fact is, is that it wasn't the prayer that did anything. It is faith in Christ, which brings justification. Do you believe? Saving faith is defined as not only agreeing that the facts of the, 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 seeing the facts of the gospel, agreeing that they're true. But it is that, that other aspect of it as well. I agree that these things are true. I agree that it actually happened, yes. But that third aspect of saving faith is, I believe he did it for me. It's that confident trust. I believe he did it for me. That's saving faith. So if you have believed upon the gospel that Christ lived the perfect life that God required, that you couldn't do, that he did it for you, and that he goes to the cross... And he endures the very justice of his father, the wrath against sin. He endures it and he satisfies God's justice. He rises again three days later. If you believe that, and that's where your trust is, that's where your assurance is, then you're a Christian. There is no wishful thinking here. This is a certainty. We like to quote John 3.16 often, don't we? We say that a lot. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Do you see the promise there? Shall not perish. It doesn't say shall not perish as long as they continue to meet the criteria. Shall not perish as long as they perform well in their obedience to me. It is shall not perish. For everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him shall not perish. That's the promise And so it isn't a matter of wishful thinking. The hope that he is referring to here, this hope that is unseen, is hope in this very foundation. That Christ has paid the ransom. Christ has paid my penalty. He has paid it all in full. The only thing he requires of me is to believe. Well, we say, well, we have to add. Believe. But you also got to repent. You also have to obey. You also have to uh, do this or whatever. Repentance 
in submission to Christ, obedience to Christ, all of these things are not things you must do. These are things that you will do because the Spirit of God is in you, producing the new life in you. Your justification has nothing to do with these. These are part of your sanctification. So then it goes back to this. My assurance is not in continually examining myself and hoping and having that wishful thinking that one day I'll be in the presence of God. Instead, what Paul said is, take your eyes off of yourself and behold Christ, for that is your assurance. He is your hope. I don't pray enough. He did. I don't obey enough. He did. I don't, I don't know as much as what I should when it comes to theology or the, the scriptures in general, all of this. No, but he knew it all. I don't give thanks enough. That's okay. He did. I don't praise God enough. He did. Everything that God requires and that God desires of his people, Christ performed it perfectly. And so again, we're not hoping for something in the sense of wishful thinking. Your hope is grounded and secured. Not in yourself, but in another, which is Christ. And the promise that you have in him, that you can be confident in, is that on the last day, he will raise you up because that's the promise that he made and his promises are sure and his promises are certain and his promises are an anchor for our souls. One writer says this, it is the very nature of uh, the gospel, excuse me, it is the very nature of gospel hope that remains unconsummated. Hope that is seen is not hope. As Paul's rhetorical question implies, if the fulfillment of God's future promises were complete, the effects would be fully visible. Hope would not be needed. The future would have arrived, but it has not arrived. Therefore, hope is still very much in order. We say, as Abraham do, and hope against hope. From a human point of view, we can't really see how it can be. But it grounded, being grounded in the very nature of a God who cannot lie, who has made promises, it is a sure hope. One writer, he says this, somebody said this, it was quoted by another. So whoever did say it, kudos to them. A man can live 40 days without food, 8 days without water, 8 minutes without air, but no one can live a second without hope. End quote. The Christian life is lived in that hope of what Paul is saying here. Hope is vital to the Christian life. And with this hope, with this hope we lay hold of that peace and joy and the promise of what Christ has in the present time. And then lastly, he speaks of this persevering hope. But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly. This perseverance, it, it's a word which means that patient endurance. Yours may say patience. It is a patience that is um, able to abide under the pressures of life. It is because of this hope, this steadfast hope, 
that produces in us that perseverance as we wait eagerly for it, and that is meaning for it is going back to the redemption of our bodies. We have this future hope that is an anchor for our souls and brings us through the very trying times of life, the pressures of life. Dr. Sproul says, for believers, travail, meaning pain, grief, because of how things are, is permeated with expectation, not disappointment and frustration, and with patience as well as eagerness. The travail in this life is not meant to cause us to despair, but it is, it is with patience and with eagerness that we endure whatever it is that comes. Because we look forward to something else. We have an expectation of something that is to come. And you see what, where Paul is bringing all of this to his readers. It may be that during this particular time, this very well could have been um, not long before Nero would bring persecution against the Christians in Rome. And for his readers, this is establishing that very that, that hope and that confident hope and that persevering hope that even though you endure these things, and he's going to get more into that sort of subject later, but as you endure these very things, you have the expectation of something better. This is painful for the moment, but there's something better. There's something greater. And because you are in Christ, you have the surety of this hope. And this hope is what helps you to persevere. We've not laid hold of it yet, of course. The redemption of our bodies being made whole, but we eagerly wait for it and we eagerly long for it. That's where Paul says in Titus 2.13, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. With perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. When you endure your times of trial, your times of anguish, of disappointment. What is it that brings you through? Or do you fall into despair? You know, there's a lot of folks that when they endure some very difficult times in their life, they fall apart. Do you know that it is these truths that help you through those times? It's not just something that you... You think, well, we'll worry about that stuff later when it comes. These truths are given to you now so that you may reflect upon them and that you may meditate on them and that you may preach them back to yourself because there's a lot of different aggravations that come in life, a lot of different uh, hurts and pains that come in life, frustrations at work. Some of the times that... That uh, like for, for my own self, the frustrations that I have that sometimes they just seem to overwhelm me. And that there's so many things that I would like to say or there's so many things that I would like to do differently in order to relieve myself of whatever the frustration is. But I'm not the boss. And so I'm to do what I am told to do. And so with that, I say, in light of what you have for us, O Lord. This is a very small thing. Help me to overcome this. You say, well, that, that sounds kind of small, kind of petty. You, you think of those things, even with the small things at work, 
Yes, I, I sure do. And I pray. And I say, Lord, this is, this is the promises that you have given to me. I know that whatever frustrations I'm experiencing are, are really, in light of eternity, are very small. Because this is the shortest time of my existence. Even if I lived in my 70s or 80s or wherever, this is the shortest time of my existence for eternity is to come. Help me keep that in view. As Jonathan Edwards had, had uh, prayed, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Let me be heavenly minded. Let me see things from that perspective. That I don't fall into despair or frustration or fall into sin. For letting my mouth get the best of me. Or bitterness to get the best of me. Stamp eternity on my eyeballs. What do you think of? What do you consider whenever you're enduring such times? For these truths are here for you. They are here to help you persevere. To help you endure. You have to preach back to yourself what you know to be true. That's what the psalmist did. Psalm 42. One of my favorite psalms. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. You preach back what you know to be true. In light of eternity, anything that we endure here is a very small thing. So what keeps you from that hope? What keeps you from having that certainty of that hope? What blinds you that you can't see the certainty of that hope? These are the things that only you can answer because you, only, you, you know yourself better than anybody. What is going on in your own life? But dear friend, know this. That your hope in Christ is certain. And it's that hope in Christ that will help you through. If you would just take your eyes off of the problem and the circumstance and the delight that you have in being angry or the delight that you have in, in whatever it is that is sinful and then focus yourself back upon Christ. You know, when I get angry, when I get angry, you probably do this too. At least I sure hope that you do since I'm getting ready to tell you this. But there are times in which you get angry or somebody at work or something like this and then you drive away or you get out of the office and you think to yourself you have this whole scenario of this conversation that never happened but in your mind it's happening and you're even you're playing both sides well they said this and i say this and then they said that and i say this and you're taking such delight in something that is just so silly but you're taking delight in it because it makes you feel good to be angry and to say whatever it is that you wanted to say. That's silly, isn't it? But that just shows just how petty that we can be. But instead of delighting in what is sinful, these truths are here to say, this is nothing. Look at what he has for you later. Let this help you to endure the very small things, the big things. For there is much more that I have for you, is what the Lord says. So dear friend, meditate on these truths. 
reflect upon these truths and realize that they are here written for your edification, to build you up, to give you even greater confidence in the Lord, and to long for the day in which you will be made whole. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Father, thank you for this great hope that we have in Christ. A hope that no circumstance can take from us. A hope that we pray that you would grow within us and cultivate in us even more. That we continually long for the day. Not seeing this day as a day of despair when we leave this world, but a day of of such delight that we have the privilege of meeting the King the day you call us home. That as we endure the very trials of this life that we consider, this is nothing compared to what you have for us. Let these these wonderful truths that we've learned grow within us. Bring these back to our remembrance in our time of need. Grant us the grace, O Lord, to, to remember these things and to delight in these things. Father, we, indeed, we fail you often. But we thank you that the Spirit of God is in us who convicts our hearts and drives us to the cross all the more when we do sin against you. Thank you for his continued presence, his continued work in us. And ultimately, we thank you for the full sanctifying work that he will perform in us on the appointed day. Father, we love you because you first loved us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and all of God's children said, amen.